0: And what you're seeing a lot of in the Russian um, nuclear deterrent signaling and narrative since, um, since February 24th is a combination of uh, deterrence and coercion.
1: This is not a bluff. And those who try to blackmail us with nuclear weapons should know that the weather vane can turn and towards them. With those ominous words, Russian President Vladimir Putin renewed fears across the globe that Russia could employ nuclear weapons in its war with Ukraine. As we were editing this episode, Russia conducted its annual nuclear exercises, drills that this year have added resonance given the Kremlin's implied threats to use nuclear force in the conflict. But how likely is Putin really to use nuclear weapons? And how would russia use one in the war what would the effects be globally as well as in the conflict with ukraine to answer these questions and to puncture some of the myths surrounding nuclear weapons and in particular russian nuclear doctrine we spoke to olya olika the program director for europe and central asia at the international crisis group joining us was also bruno Tertrace, deputy director of the foundation for strategic research a french think tank as always Please rate and review Uncommon Decency on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And feel free to send us your comments or questions either on Twitter at undecencypod or by email at undecencypod at gmail.com. Please consider supporting the show through our Patreon where you will get access to extended episodes and even the opportunity to ask questions of our guests. As always, we hope you enjoy this episode.
2: Take care. Now, This week, exclusively, we make the entire episode available to the public so that more people can get a better sense of the bang you get for your buck by becoming a paid subscriber. Now, we hope you will consider joining us on Patreon for as little as the price of a sandwich a month. Enjoy the episode. The speculation is running high that the ongoing war in Ukraine will tip into or escalate into nuclear warfare. Uh, Olya, could you please explain what the difference is between tactical and strategic nuclear weapons?
0: So there are a few ways to differentiate between tactical and strategic nuclear weapons. Uh, One easy one is simply to say the strategic nuclear weapons are the weapons that are limited by strategic nuclear weapons treaties, which actually define them. But the general notion uh, historically was that strategic nuclear weapons are the ones that can reach between formerly the Soviet Union, now Russia and the United States, um, and from the United States to the Soviet Union formerly the Soviet Union and now Russia, and they also tend to have a larger payload than the shorter-range systems that um, get described as tactical. But a lot of this, uh, you know, there's a lot of space for redefinition and um, reinterpretation.
2: Thank you, thank you. Bruno, is there anything you would like to add to all these definition, this Distinction, rather?
0: Yeah, I think it's absolutely pointless
3: to get into this debate. There's just no way to distinguish between various categories of weapon, except for the purely legal way that Olya described. There is a way, however, to distinguish between, quote, strategic, "quote use, and tactical, quote, unquote, use. I mean, those who talk about tactical use or tactical nuclear weapons, they generally refer to the use of nuclear weapons on a battlefield with a view to directly affect the course of a battle. It's as simple as that. And you know that's really something which is dates back from the fifties, which sounds very passe. I'm not saying it cannot be done tactically, but in general, it refers to the use on a battlefield that is not on the territory of the other, and to directly affect the conduct of a campaign.
1: Yeah. So I, th- I think we can probably move on then into a bit of a broader conversation about Russian strategic doctrine. Um, The phrase that's been thrown out a lot in the press is this concept of escalate to de-escalate. But could you walk us through what that actually entails and whether it actually does appear in uh, Russian strategic documents, starting with you, Olya?
0: So, the concept of uh, escalate to de escalate is a Western concept. It's not a Russian concept. The idea is that Russia would launch a war of choice, um, a war that, you know, it. It wants to have for whatever reason but not not an existential war Uh, a lot of times when people have speculated on this in the past it uh, the idea was that russia was going to invade uh, possibly estonia or another baltic country and then to dissuade nato from fighting back and from defending the country that russia had just invaded russia would use a nuclear weapon um, demonstrating in that way that it's um, it's very very serious and NATO shouldn't keep going. Um, it's not in Russian doctrine it's also I mean one of the things that really frustrates me about this concept is the very language of it right escalate to de-escalate. okay well in most cases countries escalate in a conflict in order to de-escalate. That is why you escalate you escalate because you think that more, pressure, more activity, more action is going to either give you a victory or it's going to convince your adversary to stand down. So it's not an interesting thing to say that somebody's escalating to de-escalate. If you read what the Russians uh, write about nuclear use, and if you listen to what the Russians say about nuclear use, um, there's a bit of confusion as to what they would actually do. So the fundamental Russian nuclear doctrine, kind of the very basic uh, concept that's in Russian military doctrine is that Russia would use a nuclear weapon when the very existence of the state is at risk. And then there was a, um, a paper that came out in June of 2020 that unpacked that a bit and talked about... Um, attacks on critical infrastructure. It talked about attacks on uh, Russia's nuclear deterrent. It more clearly laid out the prospect that Russia would launch on warning. Now, none of this was really new. A lot of it had come up in statements by Vladimir Putin and other Russian leaders in the past. Now, the other piece of this that doesn't quite fit is that even before that, you had Russian documents that talked about the use of nuclear weapons in the course of a conflict to demonstrate resolve. And that fits a little bit better with perhaps this escalate to deescalate narrative, but not quite, because, um, again, you saw this in the Naval Doctrine, and then there was some phrasing in the June document that also referred to this. And the idea was that Russia would threaten to use and be prepared to use that kind of language, nuclear weapons, in order to demonstrate resolve. Um, So did my... Are we still there? Sorry. Yeah. Sorry. Sorry. My computer just did a weird thing in order to demonstrate. So sorry about that. In order to demonstrate resolve. Um, So the question is, what does that mean? And my own personal interpretation of this is that it's a bit of license to coerce, Um, that the idea is that Russia, like other nuclear weapon states, has historically and has more recently talked a big talk about the potential use of nuclear weapons with the idea of, indeed, demonstrating resolve and causing adversaries to stand down. How is this different from escalate to de-escalate? Well, I think it is still about existential threats, if not to the state, and certainly to its leadership and to Russia, as Russia, uh, governed as Russia is today. And I think it's not entirely clear at what point it crosses over into use. Um, you know I think this this is part of the problem is that when you start brandishing nuclear threats, the point is to convince your adversaries that you're serious and you would actually do it. Um, you want them to believe that you're serious and you would actually do it. Whether or not you really are willing to risk the global thermonuclear war that could potentially result is a different question.
1: Bruno, do you want do you have anything to add to that?
3: Yeah, I mean, oh, yeah, and I've discussed this before, and Broadly speaking, we share the same view. I mean, I would just add that I believe that the expression was not entirely a Western invention because it was found in an old uh, Russian document, but it not refer to nuclear use. It was referring to military strategy in general. The problem is that uh, you, you were referring to commentators, but the U.S. Nuclear Posture Review in 2018 uh, adopted this this uh, expression as a description of Russian nuclear doctrine, which is not correct. I mean, in fact, and there's, there's actually there's much to say about Russian nuclear policy, and, and there's much to dislike about it, but there's also benign interpretation of escalate to de-escalate of whatever the Russian concept of limited use is, which is what simply what Western countries call re-established deterrence. So from that standpoint, I mean, it's much less scary than, than it sounds. I mean, apologies, of course, nuclear use is scary by definition. But um, So I don't think that whatever problem we have with Russia and the nuclear field is actually the nuclear doctrine. It's how Russia views nuclear weapons. It's how we think that Putin may view nuclear weapons. And I guess we're going to talk about that. But I don't think that escalate to escalate is you know, is the problem, so to say.
1: There, there was a, an article it came out in 2016, um, which I was reading in preparation for this by Kristen Van Brusgaard on Russian strategic deterrence. And it outlines a linguistic note on the meaning of the word deterrence in Russian. Um, in fact, that, that there are two terms for deterrence in Russian. Now, I'm not going to attempt to pronounce them or explain them, but <laughs> could, you, could you walk us through those?
0: Uh, sure. So there's and there um, is And uh, is also the word that Russians use for containment. And is um, the root is is uh, is the same as the root for um, for terror or for fear. So the idea is that you're frightening, which is similar to deterrence itself. Which if you you know if you're paying attention has the word terror in it too. Um, I think, um, you know, to some extent, it's a little bit like uh, compellence and deterrence in a lot of the Western parlance, right? I deter, you compel; um, I contain, uh, you 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 terrify. Um, but you know, I think for the Russians, um, one of the interesting things is in Western. Uh, In Western discourse, there is a very clear differentiation of the coercive um, mechanisms of nuclear deterrence and all deterrence between the uh, compellants, I want you to change your behavior, and deterrence, I want you not to change your behavior. The Russians, when they write about this, they don't get as engaged uh, in that particular debate. which I do think is interesting and potentially problematical, and what you're seeing a lot of in the Russian um, nuclear deterrent signaling and narrative uh, since um, since February 24th is a combination of uh, deterrence and coercion. Um, it's uh, but you know it's uh, so on the one hand. Uh, You had the early in the war statement that if Western states get in Russia's way, they will face consequences such as uh, they have never imagined. That's meant to be a deterrent statement, right? Don't help Ukraine. But then they do help Ukraine. And from there on out, all of Russia's threats and all of Russia's commentary is stop doing what you're doing. Ukraine, stop resisting. Western states, stop helping Ukraine. And that's inherently coercive. And what the deterrence literature will tell you is that, um, Compellence is harder than deterrence.
1: Bruno, what would be the, the, the major difference you would say between how Russia conceives of the use of nuclear weapons, uh, in its security apparatus and how NATO, and I'm going to, I'm going to bracket NATO, even though there's only, um, the U S the United Kingdom and France that have that nuclear capability. But what is the main contrast in the way that they both conceive of, uh, nuclear weapons in their security apparatus?
3: Well, as much as yeah and I broadly share, I believe, the same view of Russian nuclear policy, this is where we may actually part company. Um, I don't think... Well, on pa- let me put it this way. On paper, uh, Russia's official nuclear doctrine and view of nuclear weapons, as stated in the 2020 document that Olya just mentioned, uh, do not show any radical, you know, major difference of in view in theory on paper between the a quote western view and a quote russian view in fact i my take on the 2020 paper is that russia wanted to project the image of a quote responsible nuclear power and one which has invested a lot in uh conventional military forces so as to not rely as much as it did in the past on nuclear weapons so on paper i don't see any major difference now in reality or in strategic culture things may be a bit different but here's where i have my own i don't know if it's a, an original uh, view or not or at least not, it's not very a very conventional view uh, i think the russians have inherited in terms of strategic culture a lot from their soviet predecessors and uh, Paranoia and strategic culture regarding the fear of nuclear attack is something that I think is still present uh, in Russia. In fact, my uh, un- unpopular take on the 27th of February decision to put uh, strategic forces, not only nuclear, but strategic forces in a special regime of combat mode, perhaps was also a way to say, hey, you, know, you never know with these uh, Western... You know, countries. Uh, who knows? They actually may attack us. Uh, so I'm pushing the argument a little bit, but I'd like it, it's I'd like to you know to bring a counterweight to a school of thought, in particular in the United States, which believes and you know maybe they're right, but I'm not entirely certain that they're right that Russia has a very offensive view of uh, you know nuclear weapons and nuclear use. And in fact, you know, for all the talk about nuclear, quote, blackmail, unquote, I don't view the Putin and, you know, the Putin and the Lavrov and some like petrushev statements since February the 24th as being nuclear coercion or nuclear blackmail. I mean, almost of all of their statements have been, you know, just deterrence reminders or deterrence statements. So in a nutshell, um, my overall impression is that, you know, there's, There are very few grounds to say that on paper, from official texts and statements, Russia has a very different way to view nuclear weapons than the West has today.
2: Yes, and let's try to drill a little bit deeper into what goes into choosing to launch a nuclear weapon, Right, the decision-making behind such a choice. Um, If anyone that has followed, um, for instance, the tensions between America and and North Korea in just the past uh, two to four years knows that um, um, the American um, news uh, media has come up with a phrase: uh, the nuclear weapon, right? The proverbial nuclear weapon, as if the uh, president of the United States was uh, uh, was presented with uh, a physical web button or a, a, a physical button on which to push uh, in order to launch a nuclear weapon, right? The, the nuclear button, and um, what? How would that process look like in Russia? How would Putin go about uh, making that determination? Is is Vladimir Putin the only person that's able to launch a nuclear weapon on behalf of Russia, Uh, starting with Alia?
0: So we don't actually know the answer to this question. Um, We know that in the Soviet Union, there was a certain amount of dual control that you needed the MOD on board if you were. Heading up the Soviet Union in order to launch a nuclear weapon. We've heard some statements coming out of Russia that Vladimir Putin has sole decision authority Um, But, you know, we don't, it's it's speculation on how this actually works. I do think that it is true that Russia would not launch a nuclear weapon, would not use any kind of nuclear weapon without Vladimir Putin having agreed to it. Uh, Whether or not there's a second key that somebody else has to turn or agree to, I couldn't tell you. Now, of course, there's a whole chain of command, right, um, to actually launch the weapons. There's all sorts of security systems in place. um, All of That has to happen. Uh, But that's not the same as somebody having a veto, right? Because if, say, you are the colonel uh, who decides, no, I'm not going to do it, there is somebody behind you who will push you out of the way and do it if that's the command. So. Um, you know, I just want to kind of underline that it's not simply that, uh, you know, there are all these people in the chain of command and any of them could stop this. Uh, it would be quite a big deal to try to stop it once it's in motion. And every basically everybody would have to agree to stop it rather than one person would have to agree to stop it. Uh, but in terms of the actual Russian command and control and decision authority, it's a bit of a black box.
2: Is it a, a black box, Bruno? How much are you able to put together? Uh, when you're trying to reconstruct what, what happens in uh, in uh, in the highest echelons of power in Russia, when it comes to nuclear weapons,
3: yeah, I agree that it's a there's a little bit of a riddle with an enigma and a mystery, blah blah blah, as they say about Russia. Look, I think it's important to distinguish between the legal authority and the technical authority. The legal authority, you know, that's Vladimir Putin, that's the president. It's clear. It's uh, it's uh, it's in the text, so there's no question about that. The technical uh, ability to launch, well, you know, we know that there were there's this system which is a, you know, a communication system, you know, the nuclear suitcase a la, a la Russian, which is called the Cheget, and there are three of them at least. One is Putin, the other one is Choigu, the third one is Gerasimov, the head of the armed forces. Now. As Oya hinted at, we have some statements by um, you know, people who were in the system uh, in the uh, 80s when the system was introduced, which reported that at least one, perhaps two keys to be turned, so to say, it's an image, of course, uh, you know, that you know, one person could not control the button by himself. And that may have been inherited from the Soviet system. Actually, it was a Soviet innovation because uh, in the Soviet system, by definition, not one person could have entire authority. Now, does Vladimir Putin has the full technical authority to launch nuclear weapons in all circumstances without others inserting another kind of code? Maybe it's just a military code. Maybe it's a confirmation code. We don't know what we do know once again is two things the legal authority is Putin, and as Odia says, there's a whole system behind it, and there would be other keys to be turned. Um, it all depends whether you're talking about you know answering to a surprise attack, and I think the system in such a case, uh, would probably have very few, uh, very few, you know, uh, breaks or if it's about using a nuclear weapon on a theater, and that may involve a big, cha- a big long chain of command, you know, from taking out the weapon from the hangar, loading it on a plane or on a missile, etc. So there may be, at this point, breaks in the system. In a nutshell, simply put, uh, if Putin wanted to launch one single nuclear-armed missile over the territory of Ukraine, he should know that maybe the implementation of the order, especially since it would be visible and seen by the United States and other countries, maybe would not be as easy as it is on paper.
1: Um, I just want to pivot a little bit into the current war in Ukraine. And I understand that there's a, a general hesitation to discuss hypotheticals um, when it comes to the use of nuclear weapons. but. Let's say that um, the Russians were to use, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna use the, the more common nomenclature of a battlefield nuke, um, or deployed a nuclear weapon on the battlefield as opposed to targeting a city like Kiev. Would that make the? Do you believe that that would escalate the intensity of the war, or do you think that would be a point for negotiation and? How much do you think it would strengthen or weaken Putin domestically? I know there's a lot of questions in there, but I'll start with you, Olya, um, in terms of how it would change um, the, uh, the battlefield in Ukraine itself, as well as Putin's domestic situation.
0: Okay, so there's no such thing as a rational battlefield use of a nuclear weapon in Ukraine. There is not a target that you're going to take out with a nuclear weapon that you couldn't take out with conventional weapons. What, you, what the nuclear weapon does is make a huge mess of everything. And... Has effects, blast effects, environmental effects that spread well beyond the point of detonation. It's not just a super big boom, right? Um, you need to be thinking about Hiroshima, and Nagasaki, not your high school chemistry experiment. Um, so there's not a, there's not a, a battlefield logic. Uh, so if Russia were to use a nuclear weapon to blow up a bridge, it would blow up a whole lot more than that bridge, um, and it would make a very big mess. For for a whole lot of people, uh, for quite quite some ways, including in Russia, because you well, know, in part depending on which way the wind blows, uh, the radiation is uh, is going to go to neighboring countries. Um, so you know that that's kind of the first thing. Uh, I think it would the use of a nuclear weapon, any kind of nuclear weapon for any kind of uh, purpose, would cross a threshold that nobody has crossed since uh, the U.S. did in fact bomb Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And at that time, the U.S. didn't even know it was crossing that threshold, right? We've had decades of discussion and thought and indeed doctrine about nuclear weapons use and norms against nuclear weapons use since that time. So it would really be the first time anybody had in the modern world, with a modern understanding of what nuclear weapons are, used a nuclear weapon. It would. Absolutely, positively draw Western states into this war, which is what uh, Russia has wanted to avoid, in part because it too does not want a giant global thermonuclear war that risks everybody's existence. Uh, So, you know, I think this this is this is the logic of nuclear deterrence. Nobody uses nuclear weapons because once somebody has, you set in motion an escalatory spiral that could be uncontrollable. Uh, We can talk about how Western. States might try to control it, for instance, by not responding with a nuclear weapon. But again, given that what Russia has been historically worried about is Western conventional superiority, um, it's actually fairly quick. Uh, it's a pretty quick process uh, before where uh, wherein the Russians start worrying about... Russia and Russia's ability to remain a state—it becomes very, very messy and very, very dangerous, very, very fast. Um, So you know there isn't kind of this idea that there is a way to use a nuclear weapon in a very small, contained um, in a very small, contained way, and then you can negotiate. Um, That is, as uh, Americans of a certain age say, that's crazy talk.
1: Bruno, so how, how do you think the um, NATO would respond? Do you think there'd be a unified response for NATO uh, if Russia were to use uh, nuclear weapons in this conflict?
3: Uh, first of all, the NATO countries have started discussing this as quietly as possible, not necessarily in the formal uh, North Atlantic Council uh, format. Uh, but the problem is that we have no data points it would be a world-changing event. And we have no data point to gauge, to measure exactly how things would uh, proceed afterwards. There's just no way to know, but the world would change. The minute there's a mushroom cloud over Ukraine. And once again, I'm not one of those who believe that this is a likely scenario. I think it's extremely unlikely. But if this was to happen, frankly, uh, talking about the negotiation would be completely out of you know, out of question. Uh, it would be about first of all, restoring the world's balance literally. You, have, uh, you would have such a huge psychological impact which would reverberate all around the world. there would be financial mass panic. So you know, t- the question of the negotiation would be totally secondary. Now what happens concretely? Uh, my hunch, based on how what i've heard from uh, public and not so public statements from western officials is that most nato countries not necessarily nato but most nato countries would a- agree on a massive operation against russian forces not russian territory and probably not russian nuclear forces Not nuclear weapons, but uh, Russian forces all around the world, basically. But that, well, you know, of course, there would also be, you know, sanctions, cyber, probably cyber attacks also. Uh, The whole point would be to gauge the response in a way which clearly states that a country which offensively uses nuclear weapons has to be punished but you don't want to get into a nuclear war with russia so to calibrate exactly the reaction would be something extremely difficult uh and overall i think despite what you know western officials say publicly or privately i think it's still entirely unpredictable at this point i'm sorry to not be more helpful but i think that this is a situation that we have not seen since 1945 in a very different context so extremely difficult to predict
2: Great. Well, thank you, Bruno. Uh, Our our following question somewhat uh, prolongs uh, Alia's thought process earlier. One of the uh, suggestions that is often made when when, uh, the media talks about nuclear weapons is that they somehow launch the war into a new phase from which it is very difficult to step back. Um, So the question is, is there a foreseeable stepping off point for a Russia-NATO conflict once the nukes are involved? Or is it really a point of no return, starting with Alia?
0: Look, escalation is hard to con- uh, is hard to control. Um, clear signaling in the middle of a war is tremendously difficult. As Bruno said, I think the um, NATO response to Russia doing something this fundamentally terrifying and dangerous would be to try to signal at on the one hand, that this will not stand and you will not be the same Russia you were before, and on the other, to avoid the kind of escalation that could lead to all of us dying. Um, but how Russia understands that response, the ability to communicate um, somewhat limited goals under these conditions, you know I think that's that's really hard. Uh, There are no there are no guarantees. Uh, And I think the Russians understand this, right? Uh, And, you know, this is is why there hasn't been a nuclear war, right? I'm one of those people who do believe in deterrence. And I believe it works because people understand how difficult it is to communicate your intentions to and to manage escalation under these conditions. Um, So, you know, is it is it possible that people would be able to step back? Sure, um, all that it would take would be for everybody to step back. It's always possible to step back. The question is, would they?
2: Mm-hmm. Bruno?
3: Yeah, once again, it's very hard to predict, but perhaps we should talk also about the possible consequences in Russia. And I have to say, Arlia is better placed than I am to try to predict those consequences. but. I suspect that many Russians who say would say, hey, we were ready to sign up for a special operation uh, against Ukraine, against those, quote, Nazis, unquote, but we never signed up for a nuclear war. And, you know, if I was a bit cynical, I would say nuclear war is bad for business. I mean, what I do uh, suggest is that, you know, those who benefited from, you know, the Russian system, that is, you know, the Russian, the system of codependency between various individuals that um, that have benefited from the system under Putin, um, would they, you know, would they be ready to follow Putin in that, such an adventure? I'm really not sure. Uh, so how much of a shock would it make within the Russian system at the top? is really an open question for me and perhaps also and one of the most important questions but aurea is a better placed to answer it than i am
0: yeah i mean so th- th- thanks Bruno. i think I, I you know it's i also have a hard time predicting what happens next in russia under a variety of scenarios including the one we're currently living in Uh, Russia has become extreme, you know, just so much more autocratic and so much more closed just in the last eight months. I mean, the one thing I predicted at the start of the war that, I mean, came absolutely true was that Russia was going to be revocably changed, and Russia has been. So it's not as though this is a democracy where people are going to... um, you know, try to change their government through first protests and then democratic means. Uh, if their government does something they don't like, um, you are you, you know, if something cataclysmic happens, I do think there will be a lot of uncertainty and confusion in Russia, I continue to think that uh, a popular revolution, a successful popular revolution in Russia is extremely unlikely. Uh, Can the people around the leadership have a fight amongst themselves and take down the folks who made the decision to do something this stupid? Uh, Possibly, I hope so. But again, there's not a huge... um, a huge number of data points on this working out either. So it's all very, um, it's all really difficult to predict. There are a whole lot of gears in motion, and a lot of relationships that we don't fully understand. I think Bruno's right that uh, people don't, you know, they don't want to die. They don't want to risk uh, the end of everything. But they've been follow, they've been letting this happen in part because they don't see any real alternative. You live in Russia, you're part of the system. Uh, The system Vladimir Putin has built around himself is the system that guarantees your life and your livelihood. So you go along with it. Um, Again, it's really difficult to imagine what happens in the brains of these people if Vladimir Putin makes a decision to start a nuclear war. You know, I can if I put myself try to put myself in their shoes, I would be horrified and try to stop things. But I would never be in their shoes in the first place. So, you know, I'm not the best person to ask. It's not a very satisfying answer, I know, but prediction is hard, especially of Russia today.
1: I I just recognizing that we're um, coming up on time. um, I'm going to ask one sort of open-ended question for you both on the future of conversations around nuclear weapons, um, and then hopefully we'll be able to get you to your next meetings. The past few months, really since the since Russia invaded Ukraine in February, um, these conversations around the use of nuclear weapons have been popping up uh, more and more. Even today, the head of the Russian Foreign Intelligence Services was interviewed by the BBC, and he blamed the West for reckless use of nuclear rhetoric. Um, North Korea obviously has been testing missiles, and this has led to advocates of... Uh, nuclear disarmament to really cite more examples that nuclear weapons are making the world less safe do you think that conversation will become grow in power and prominence in some of the media and do you think that this example is good for why nuclear weapons can deter countries or do you think that this is a more promising argument for the advocates of unilateral nuclear disarmament
0: So I think everybody, assuming we all survive, everybody's going to walk away from this making the same arguments they made before that nuclear weapon states are going to be unwilling to give them up because they are going to be confident that that is the only thing that prevents others from coercing them. And um, those who wish to abolish nuclear weapons will point out that uh, this has brought us to the brink once again, that this is tremendously dangerous, and you know we would be better off without these weapons. Um, I would say that if there were no nuclear weapons and somehow the nuclear weapons had all gone away on, you know, I don't know, February 1st of this year, uh, Western states would be probably in this war. Um, and Russia would probably have lost a conventional war. Um, so, you know, from that perspective. But if there were no nuclear weapons, we would not have gotten to where we were on February first, twenty twenty-two. Either it's just all so path dependent, um, but I don't. Uh, I don't think this is going to fundamentally change anyone's uh, anyone's position, uh, or at least not very many people's positions.
3: Okay, good. So, you know, overall, I think the you know, if the conflict stopped today, which it won't, people are gonna come out of this war with pretty much the same ideas about nuclear weapons than they had before. Uh, Some will say uh, nuclear weapons have prevented a major war between NATO and Russia. Russia is not attacking NATO. NATO is not attacking Russia. Therefore, they are useful. Others will say, well, you know, nuclear weapons have proven that they are useless because they have not prevented major aggression in Europe which is not what they're supposed to do in the first place. But uh, others, still others will say, well, if you want to make sure you're not attacked by a big country, uh, you know, have nuclear weapons or build them or shelter under a nuclear umbrella. And finally, uh, disarmament activists will say, you know, this war shows once again that nuclear weapons are just way too dangerous for mankind. So overall, and again, you know, all things equal, if the conflict stopped on twenty fourth of October, which it won't, uh, people will say people will keep, come out of this war with uh, pretty much the same IDs and they had as they had previously. That's my
1: guess. Um, so we have a, a question here from one of our Patreon subscribers, uh, which I encourage you all to do uh, and join for exclusive content and the ability to ask questions of our wonderful guests. So on October thirteenth, uh, French President Emmanuel Macron said. France has a nuclear doctrine that is based on the vital interests of the country and which are clearly defined. These would not be at stake if there was a nuclear ballistic attack in Ukraine or in the region. Now, is this statement, which trades strategic ambiguity for clarity, a break from traditional French nuclear doctrine? And why did Macron make his nuclear policy so explicit? I'll turn it to you, Bruno.
3: Yeah, Okay. I think this was loose talk and one should not read too much into it, however, uh, it posed a few problems. Um, first of all, the president no, improvised on a topic that you know you're not supposed to improvise. Uh, he you know he used language which was not exactly the state language. so everyone was like, oh, has France's nuclear doctrine changed, etc. No, it has not. It was just loose talk by the president. Now he was what he sought was reassuring. The French population, which is, you know, as most European populations, is very worried about the risk of nuclear war. So I understand why he did this. I understand why he said, you know, if there's a nuclear explosion in Ukraine, we are not going to strike back, quote unquote, with nuclear weapons of our own. And that's entirely legitimate. But the problem is that it sent the wrong message. It sent the message to our Ukrainian and Central Eastern European friends that, you know, it would not be any of our business. And also he said if there's a nuclear weapon uh, explosion in Ukraine or in the region, but the region is the EU, it's NATO. I mean, it's our friends, it's our allies. And, you know, Macron was the first to say two years ago, uh, you know, the French deterrent should also cover uh, one way or the other our European friends. So it was self-contradictory. And I think it was also, once again, uh, seen as a negative message by uh, many in Europe. So for all these reasons, I understood that he wanted to reassure the French public, but I think he did it in a way which hurt our overall interests.
1: Olya, if I could ask a slightly related follow-up to you just very quickly. Um, There had been, there is still some public opposition to the for deployment of some of the US's nuclear stockpile in Europe. Do you anticipate countries in Eastern Europe pushing for um, the deployment of nuclear weapons, say like in Poland or some of the Baltic states? And is there a possibility that that, that provokes an escalation with Russia?
0: So I think we've, uh, I think Poland has uh, in the past expressed willingness to host nuclear weapons. I don't think there's any interest uh, in moving nuclear weapons to these countries. Um, aside, you know, It would be a violation of the NATO-Russia Founding Act, although I'm not sure that that matters as much given that Russia has um, quite flagrantly already violated the NATO-Russia Founding Act. But I also think there's no particular reason from the NATO perspective to do this. So I don't think there's any danger that it's going to happen
1: bruno any last thoughts just before we wrap up
3: well it's a bit too early to exactly gauge the consequences uh of this war for nuclear deterrence i you know i'm firmly on the side of those who think that it has had a moderating effect overall but we don't know exactly the future future contours and shape of uh, the nuclear deterrence system in Europe after the war—it's quite possible that we'll have you know, nuclear weapons in Belarus, nuclear weapons in Poland, or that you know everybody will be just after, just like after the Cuban Missile Crisis, everybody will be happy to take a step step back. Maybe Russia will be interested in engaging in arms control. Who knows? I mean, again, it's the easy thing to say. Uh, it's too early to tell but i think that overall still we do already have a lesson and the lesson is that the nuclear weapons have prevented a direct commitment a direct engagement of uh, nato versus russian forces but they may also have encouraged vladimir putin to attack a country which was you know not endowed by with nuclear weapons or not protected by any external nuclear umbrella
1: Olya and Bruno are out. It's just me and Jorge now recording this outro. Uh, That was a truly fascinating conversation. I think a very important conversation as well about nuclear weapons in general and in this conflict specifically. And one comment that Olya made that I think is really important is you know, when we see news coverage of Russia and its nuclear capabilities, a phrase that has been thrown out a lot, and it's one that's, been in my mind for quite quite a while now uh really is the notion of escalate to de-escalate and i remember sitting in a talk with the former head of u.s strategic command and this comment someone raised this comment um talking about russian strategy of escalate to de-escalate and it was refreshing to hear olia dismiss this as not appearing in any official russian nuclear documents. Each country publishes a nuclear doctrine. And the fact that the phrase escalate to de-escalate does not appear in it is, I think, an important thing to remember when we try and consider the likelihood of Russia using nuclear weapons in Ukraine. This idea that you can escalate to a nuclear conflict to avert a escalation by either NATO or Ukraine, um, whomever it might be, the fact that that doesn't actually appear in an official document should Hopefully, among some of our listeners, uh, perhaps ease some concerns and some fears that they had that this conflict might spiral into a nuclear. Dimension. Yes,
2: and I think one of the one of the most interesting points that she went on to make was that, uh, contrary to the popular conception of nuclear, uh, uh, the use of nuclear weapons in the media, you'd quite simply do not have. I mean, I think this is what scholars call path dependency, right? When the decision is made to launch a nuclear uh, weapon against an enemy, um, what I got from from Olia's uh, presentation was that you simply cannot turn the clock back. The war is launched into another phase with un- totally unpredictable uh, uh, outcomes, and uh, I think you called it in one of the questions we uh, we asked her. You would call it you would you, you call this uh, Julian uh, a stepping off point uh there there simply is no stepping off point from which you know once once uh, uh a nuclear weapon has been launched um you are uh uh you are unfortunately uh, entangled in a quagmire from which you can quite simply not pull out
1: yes and the it's it's interesting. We asked about what would the response be um, to it because you know, sort of when you read coverage of this conflict and you know what the West would have to do in response to the use of a nuclear weapon, it's always a case of well they could use um, they could use conventional forces to counterattack against the source of the nuclear weapon in Russia. So whether that's destroying air bases uh, or the Black Sea fleet, but even that action alone immediately puts NATO and Russia in direct military conflict, then to not respond would be to normalize a taboo, namely the deployment of nuclear weapons, which gives a green light to say North Korea to use a nuclear weapon or for countries that are considering uh, developing their own nuclear weapons programs, the understanding that they could develop them and use them in a war and not be punished for that usage uh, would be very destabilizing for global security. One other element I wanted to sort of just touch upon briefly Um, is I think the there are a lot, because we've only ever had the use of nuclear weapons in conflict twice in Hiroshima and Nagasaki by the United States, and that was prior to the establishment on, I would say, conventions and understandings around the use of nuclear weapons when the United States was the only nuclear power, uh, is there are some sort of illusions about what it means to use a nuclear weapon. And again, I think this was an interesting point that Bruno raised as well, in that you can't just, you know, deploy the the nomenclature of a tactical nuke or a battlefield nuke. Uh, Olya said that all you're doing is creating a big hole, but with radiation. It's not um, something that's actually changing the nature of the battlefield other than to just make it very messy. Um, And I think that's an important thing to consider um, whenever we talk about the use of nuclear weapons in warfare, is to remember that the use case for them is virtually non-existent. You know, we have... uh, different yields of nuclear weapons, but just simply using one in a battlefield doesn't do much to change uh, the direction or the momentum on the battlefield. Um, Or at least that's the point that was being made because all you're doing is just creating a giant crater in the ground and dealing with radioactive fallout and just generally making the battlefield a much messier place. So I think that's probably a a point
2: that I would- Yes, and uh, there's actually a question I would have have liked to ask uh, our guests, but let me ask it uh, to you, Julian. There's been a lot of press coverage in the, in the recent weeks, and particularly last week, um, where both nuclear and both uh, excuse me, both Russia and Ukraine are accusing one another of using nuclear uh, debris, right, nuclear waste, uh, in uh, uh, in concocting or putting together weapons that I think do not qualify as nuclear weapons, but they're made. They're made of uh, nuclear waste, uh, nuclear energy waste, um, and they're, they they seem to be accusing one another of using that. They seem to be saying, you know, of one another that uh, my my opponent, my, my 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 enemy, is a is playing dirty. Uh, they are um, recovering the, these very radioactive uh, pieces of nuclear waste, and they're launching it against my. My, my, my soldiers in the front. Uh, ha- have you heard about this line of coverage?
1: Yes, the, the concept of potentially putting together a dirty bomb and just to sort of clarify what that means. So uh, the difference between a dirty bomb and a nuclear bomb is that a nuclear bomb, the explosive force comes from the nuclear reaction. Um, so there are different types of nuclear weapons and how you generate that nuclear reaction. Um, but the actual explosive force comes from, say, the splitting of the atom and the chain reaction from that, which, if uncontrolled, leads to a massive explosion, destroying everything within a large radius. A dirty bomb is when you attach radioactive material to a conventional weapon, to a conventional bomb. So if you had, say, a cruise missile, you could add a radioactive uh, device to it, and then the radioactive particles would travel with the conventional explosive. So when it detonates, it's spreading radiation. It's essentially similar to the use of, um, say, putting a, a gas canister in a missile and then using the chemical fallout from that to generate destruction and death. But you're using radiation to do it. So the accusation that the Russians have levelled is that because Ukraine has a number of nuclear power plants, including at um, Zaporizhia, which has been a, a central fighting point in the war recently, uh, and indeed at the start of the conflict, is they're using waste nuclear materials to generate a dirty bomb that they could then use on the battlefield. There is no evidence to support this, and the British, French, and Americans immediately issued a statement um, rebutting this accusation from Russia. Turkey was also uh, on the call when Russia made this accusation, um, but I don't think they made a statement about it, interestingly enough. Um, So it's a thing that we've seen in the news, and it is a fear. In fact, former Defense Secretary William Perry, who's one of the leading advocates and voices on warning of the risks of nuclear weapons. His number one fear, uh, even during this conflict, has not been the use of a nuclear weapon by a state. His number one fear is on the use of a dirty bomb um, by a rogue terrorist group. And indeed, I believe in the 1990s, some Chechen rebels tried to detonate one um, but it failed, um, but someone has to, um, okay. it to be fact-checked.
2: That's good enough. Uh, is there anything else you found uh, worthy of note in the conversation? Were there, were there any other lines of questioning that you wish we had had more time since this was a conversation that was supposed to last for uh, about 20 minutes more than it did? Um, was there anything else uh, left in the, uh, in, the, in, the, in the docket?
1: you know i think there was one thing i was hoping to ask and it stems from an article that i read in 2015 which you can still find um it's called how world war three became possible and it's by uh, max fisher uh, it's quite a long article so if you have a long train journey or a long bus journey i encourage you to read it then um but it outlines how the us or the us and nato could find themselves at war with russia and there are a number of scenarios that it walks through. And one of them is the Ukraine scenario. And I think there was a, there's a line in the article, um, and I'm going to have to get the right individual on it. Um, I believe it was Evgeny Brzezinski, uh, who was a former Russian general. And he said in this article that Ukraine for Russia is a red line and especially a Ukraine that is hostile to Russia is a definite red line, but the U S administration has decided it's not. Um, For example, massive military help to Ukraine from the United States, it could start as a proxy war and then, and then in the article, he trailed off. And I think I was hoping to ask whether that red line that was very much the case in 2015 for Russia when it had the, when it had successfully annexed Crimea and looked to be uh, skirting some of the blowback from the European Union and and the United States for its invasion of Ukraine and annexation, um, I wonder if that red line has strengthened or weakened because of the way the conflict is going and whether that makes the use of nuclear weapons more or less likely. And I think that's a, a question that we'll have to have uh, in the future as we continue to talk about this conflict yeah. and how to
2: yeah. change the world. Well, w- with that, I think uh, we've really kind of covered uh, most of the postgame uh, analysis that we wanted to get uh, to get in. Uh, Just wanted to uh, just wanted to thank all of our listeners again for tuning in to our show uh, once again for the uh, this will be the 66th, I believe, episode Um, uh, and uh, and and, uh, see you at the the one uh, next week.